You're listening to the Melting Podcast. A little of everything from everyone, everywhere. With your host, AF Grappen. Hey, Word Chefs, welcome to episode 11 of the Melting Podcast. I'm your host, my name was in the intro, and then there's my other host. I'm Aaron. So I hope you enjoyed our, you know, kind of a dick move with the April Fool's joke yesterday. This is a real episode, I promise. Really? Even though it has us in it, it, it is real. Well, this is kind of April Foolish in that we don't really have any outside submissions for this episode. This Stoke the Fire is just stories from the crew of the Melting Podcast. We were inspired. We were inspired. And this is for prompt number three, which was each food in your refrigerator has a different effect on your mental health. We each wrote one, and we all recorded each other's. It was fun. So here's the first one. A Taste of the Past by Theo Kazmark. Desmond stared at the empty space on his kitchen floor. Empty, though, was not the best word. Years of collected dust, crumbs, and other miscellaneous waste now lay exposed where his refrigerator had once been. It had broken down during the night with no indication of prior problems. Everything had been running smoothly, but now he had an empty space on his kitchen floor, and that was a problem. Reclining against the edge of the counter, Desmond gazed blankly forward, his expression muted. Thoughts slowly churned in his mind, occasionally interrupted by the aches echoing throughout his body from removing the hulk of a now-dead appliance. Desmond's eyes flickered to the front door. He hadn't had company in a while. The trash collector was the first guest to enter his home in... a week? Two? He now had trouble recalling the man's face. Desmond sighed and returned his focus to the matter at hand. The dirty space didn't bother him, so he shoved the matter of cleaning to the back of his brain. How do people buy refrigerators nowadays? Desmond walked to the kitchen table, sat, switched on his laptop and began to browse. A few days later, Desmond once again leaned against the counter to look at the opposite wall of his galley kitchen. A brilliant, cold-looking stainless steel refrigerator now stood in its assigned space. Desmond furrowed his brow at the thing. Rated the best model with the most agreeable price, it was nothing like the old one. It made sense to get something new, didn't it? It even came with a tablet, which was the size of a picture frame. He gave it a tap. A small light blinked on. Desmond pressed a button next to the light and a single word flashed up on the screen. Choice? Desmond scrunched his face in confusion. Was he supposed to place an order? The instruction manual stated he should just be able to open the door and get what he wanted. He began to reach for the handle that was part of the door's edge when his hand protested. The exertion of moving the old fridge had done more harm than he thought. Putting his hand back down, Desmond looked at the screen again. The same words sat there patiently. Milk, he murmured hesitantly. After a long day, a glass of milk was something he had always found refreshing. The word disappeared from the tablet screen, but nothing else happened right away. Desmond huffed and again moved to open the door. When he did, an outline of a hand appeared on the tablet's glass. Desmond stared at it momentarily before gently placing his hand in the outline. A soft whirring noise meandered through the air as the refrigerator went to work. 
Scanning lines moved across the display, capturing his handprint. Desmond winced as a prickling sensation shot up from the scanned appendage, but another moment passed and the lines disappeared. In the same second, a small secondary door slid open on the fridge, revealing a compartment with a cold glass of milk. Frost clung to the side of the glass, and Desmond smiled. The presentation was exactly what he thought it should look like, but why was the door so low to the ground? He sat on the floor and gingerly took hold of the frosted beverage. Desmond raised the cup to his lips, took a sip, and immediately felt his body begin to relax. This was precisely what he had wanted. Reveling in this feeling, Desmond took up the tablet again and pressed the button. The screen flashed that familiar word. Choice? What did he want? The milk had completely relaxed him, so he gave in to basic instinct and let something come to him. Mashed potatoes, he mumbled contentedly. Now that was comfort food, something he had almost every week for as long as he could remember. The little door on the fridge closed. It whirred again, and shortly after produced a small bowl of steaming mashed potatoes. Desmond ignored that ache that drove through his body, lurched forward, and swiped up the container. There was no spoon, but he didn't care. He dipped a hooked finger into the creamy mixture and scooped up a mouthful. With that bite, all was right with the world. The vivid imagery of opening the door after driving home from the office flared into his mind. He was transported to a different time, a happier time. He could hear someone moving around in the kitchen. The smell of other foods hung in the air for him to sample. The closer he moved to the kitchen, though, the dimmer the memory became. Desmond tried to dash forward, trying to outrun the vanishing images around him, but everything fell into darkness and he opened his eyes again to stare at the cold, glistening refrigerator. The good feeling had left him, and now there was a void growing inside of him. Bourbon, he grunted. He hadn't even touched the tablet this time. The door on the fridge slipped closed again, and the whirring resumed, vanishing again as a short, wide glass filled with caramel-colored liquid was presented in the tray. Desmond snatched it up. He knew where this would lead them, but he didn't care. In one swallow, he shot the whole glass back and slumped against the counter cabinet behind him. Hot, bubbling anger churned inside him as the drink slid down into his stomach. Desmond picked up the tablet and saw eyes staring back at him. His eyes? Desmond squinted through trembling eyelids at the image. A soft, bright blue. Those weren't his eyes, but someone else's. His arm jerked back in a cruel reflex that sent pain firing all through his body and hurled the device at the fridge. There was a shattering bang, a flash, and a spray of shards forced Desmond to throw himself fully onto the kitchen floor and curl into a protective ball. When the noise cleared... Desmond cracked an eye open to inspect the damage. His vision was blurred, so he reached out a hand to feel around him. His palm brushed over scattered shards of glass before it connected with a small rectangular frame. Desmond slowly pushed himself up into a sitting position before picking up the item and fully opening his eyes. Blue eyes, soft and laughing, gazed back at him through fractured shards of glass. Desmond cradled the smashed picture frame in ragged, bloodied hands, and gazed transfixed at the woman who was lost to him. He no longer remembered how long ago she had disappeared from his life. All he'd gotten was a phone call. No chance of recovery, they'd said. She had taken a flight into the clear skies, 
but now was gone. Desmond wrenched his focus off the picture and took in his surroundings. His vision had now become painfully vivid. Old food lay on the table, much of it moldy or worse. The other rooms were strewn with debris that had not been addressed in months. Dust clung to almost everything. In front of him, the silent monolith of an old refrigerator loomed. On it were dents pitted with rust-colored smears. Magnets and notes, years of memories, were lying on the floor in front of it, each one displaced through grief and fury. Desmond slumped and looked back at the picture, strewn with the red that had dripped from the palms of his hands. And with no food to prompt him, Desmond wept. It was really depressing. It is a depressing story. That's why we read it first, because now everything can be uphill from here. Well, now we have to cheer them up. Let's cheer them up. Okay. Stupid husband. Here's the next one. Interview with a Refrigerator by Aaron Kazmark. Well, that sucked, Max thought as he collapsed into the driver's seat of his car. There was no way he'd get the job after that interview. The car's engine sputtered a bit before coming to life when he turned the key and he pulled out of the parking lot. Job of a lifetime, and I blow the interview. Classic. Max continued to mentally berate himself, especially for greeting the interviewer with a firm handshake and a stammering greeting of, Pleased to eat you! all the way out of the city and into the suburbs. When he parked and turned off the car, he was surprised to see that he was at the grocery store rather than his apartment building. Autopilot, I guess, he muttered under his breath. Growling sounds came from his stomach, and he decided that it was a subconscious choice that brought him here. Eh, I don't have that much at home. Might as well pick up a few things. While meandering through the aisles, Max found himself drawn to all of his childhood and college favorite comfort foods, and his cart was soon full of condensed chicken noodle soup, cocoa puffs, SpaghettiOs, ramen noodles, chocolate milk, Lunchables, Nago waffles, candies, and the like. For good measure, he grabbed a six-pack of cheap beer so it didn't entirely look like a kindergartner had done his shopping. In a hurry to get home and binge his sorrows away, He paid for the groceries and got back into his car. Max nearly dropped the armload of plastic bags while fumbling for his keys at the apartment door and hurriedly shoved them, cereal and all, into the mostly empty fridge when he got inside. With a groan, he stumbled to the tiny bedroom and changed out of his suit. As he hung it carefully in his closet, his throat grew tight. He'd saved up to buy that suit for months, hoping that an opportunity to wear it would arise. Namely an interview like today's. This job interview had been a -a once-in-a-lifetime chance, and his nerves had gotten the better of him. It might have been his only chance to get the job he dreamed of and worked toward, and now it was most likely gone. He closed his closet door and went back to the kitchen. Blinking in the light and cold from the refrigerator, he contemplated his meal options. His eyes stopped on the cocoa puffs. These always made me feel better when I was sad as a kid, he thought, and poured himself a bowl. Max could remember the first time he'd eaten the cereal. He'd been four years old, and he had lost his first tooth by knocking it out in a fall from the monkey bars. Despite an hour-long search through the wood chips and dirt of the playground, he'd been unable to find the tooth, and was utterly devastated that he had nothing to put under his pillow that night. 
His mom had comforted him by buying him the sugary cereal on the way home, and since then it had always had the power to make him smile. Hopeful that it would still work for him as an adult, he spooned the first bite into his mouth. Sadness flooded him, and his lips pursed in a childish pout. No matter how much he ate, how hard he tried to cheer up and put the bad day behind him, every bite deepened the sorrow. Max couldn't bring himself to drink the chocolatey leftover milk. Still hoping that there was something in the fridge that could lighten his mood, he opened it. Pudding. Butterscotch pudding. That would do the trick. He opened the little plastic cup and dug in, leaving the door of the fridge standing open. Max had had his first taste of this pudding when his tonsils were removed at eight years old. He'd been out of sorts and sore for days, and pudding was the only thing that had made him feel better. As he scarfed down the contents of the cup, he grew grouchier and grouchier, and could have sworn his throat started to hurt. When the confection was gone, he tossed the cup to the floor, spoon still in his mouth, and huffed a loud breath. This wasn't working, and he was still hungry. Frustrated, he dug through the contents of the grocery bag still in the fridge, looking for something with more substance. His hand found a cold can, and he pulled it out to see the meatball SpaghettiOs. There was no way these could make him unhappy. He hurried to open the can and heat them up. They were too hot when he tried to take the first bite, but Max didn't care. After the third or fourth bite, he started to feel hurt, angry, betrayed. Memories flooded to him. Memories of the first time he had eaten SpaghettiOs. His mom had never bought them for him as a kid, so the first time he had them was in college. His longtime girlfriend had broken up with him in the middle of sophomore year. After confessing, she'd been cheating on him, and his roommate had made him a can of SpaghettiOs to cheer him up. It wasn't like they could afford much else at the time, anyway. Max's eyes grew wide, and he stopped eating. The food, it was forcing him to relive the emotions that he felt the first time he'd eaten it. But that couldn't be. It was just his bad mood and the memories the food dredged up making it happen, not the food itself. Everything seemed to darken his mood and make it worse, so it must be a fluke. If something he ate were to make him inexplicably happy, then he might be suspicious that there was more going on. I've got to test this, he thought. Ripping open the fridge once more, he searched for something that would make him happy. Max grinned as he saw pizza lunchables. As he chowed down, smug pride washed over him. His best friend in elementary school had swapped him Lunchables for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich once, and Max had been so proud of himself for tricking his friend into giving him the better lunch. His experiment had actually worked. He was happy, and there was no reason for it other than the food. Giggling maniacally, he <laughs> dove back into the fridge. Chicken noodle soup made him nauseated and miserable. Chocolate milk made him anxious. Eggo waffles flooded him with sheer terror. Ramen, biting into the uncooked noodles in his rush, made him feel like he was invincible. Every time Max ate something, it evoked the feelings and memories of the first time he'd had it. 
Frowning, thanks to the Skittles he'd popped in his mouth, he went to his pantry and tried some of the foods there. Nothing. Even though he remembered how he'd felt the first time it passed his lips, he felt nothing. Apparently, it was only food that came from his refrigerator. Why? What was happening? Was it magic? No way, that's stupid. There has to be some scientific reason for it, he mused. Maybe it was something to do with the electromagnetic fields. Not his aura, that was hippie stuff. Interfering with the mechanics of the refrigerator somehow. EM fields are a thing, right? Shit, I was never any good at science, Max cursed himself. There had to be a reason. He just wasn't smart enough to figure it out. Non-food-induced depression took over him again at that thought, and he remembered the reason he was eating his feelings. This is supposed to make me feel better. What would make me feel better? He asked his totally not magical refrigerator. Max opened the fridge one last time, and instead of the jumble of plastic bags and junk food, he saw the six-pack of beer he'd grabbed as an afterthought right there in the front. Tilting his head, he recalled the first time he'd had beer. Freshman year of high school, a friend's older brother had gotten him and a bunch of others drunk. They'd started out with whiskey shots and finished with beer. Max had passed out almost immediately when the beer touched his lips. Not bad, Fridge. I'll take it. Max grabbed a beer and flopped on his couch. He twisted off the top of the bottle and chugged it. He fell asleep quickly with a smile on his face. Okay, I feel better now. Good. Beer makes everyone happy. But it's a depressant. But yet, somehow it makes people happy. Beer is talented. It breaks science. I break science. I break a lot of things. Me too! Alright, so our final story was written by none other Me. than... Yes, you. Me. Well done. I wrote it. I read it. Here it is. Cream of Whatever by A.F. Grappen. There was an unopened can of soup in the refrigerator again. Drew... You realize that cans go in the pantry, right? I shouted. I grabbed the offending item. It was one of those condensed soups in a little can. Cream of something, no doubt. My brother's shout came from down the hall, the words muffled with the distance and the closed door between us. I sighed and set the soup on the counter. I didn't know why I let Drew do the shopping while our parents were gone. Not only did he always seem to buy the most useless groceries— but he usually spent too much money doing it. No ready meals, just ingredients for his favorite dishes. Usually the wrong ingredients. And did he ever offer to cook? No, he expected me to. I figured it was less because I was older and more because I was a girl. Sexist jerk. Considering the bag of pasta in the crisper drawer, he probably wanted me to make one of Mom's specialties, tuna noodle casserole. It only had three ingredients. It's a cheap meal, and one that Drew could easily make himself. Boil water for pasta. Cook, said pasta, and dump cream of mushroom soup and tuna into it. Not exactly rocket science. So where was the tuna? I sighed and moved the few items in the fridge around. Orange juice, the kind with lots of pulp. Nasty. I don't like having to chew my juice. 
Bean sprouts. What the heck were we supposed to do with those? I found another can in the back of the fridge, behind some leftover ravioli. I didn't want to know how old that was. I snagged the other can. It wasn't tuna. Sardines in mustard sauce? Really? Drew, I'm going to make tuna noodle. The shout of triumph, though muffled by the hallway between us, was unmistakable. I'd use the ingredients he gave me and see how he liked it. The pasta was that brown whole wheat crap that has the texture of sand. It wasn't even egg noodles like Mom used. It was bow tie pasta. It would work well enough, I guessed. Pasta's pasta, right? I grabbed one out of the box before I poured the rest into the boiling water. I always keep one uncooked piece of pasta for myself. Something about crunching it between my teeth pleases me. I snapped off half of my raw bow tie and started crunching. I started humming a tune as I grabbed the can opener to tackle the cream of rainbows. I paused in the middle of the kitchen. Cream of rainbows? Was that really what was in the can? I blinked and popped the other half of the pasta in my mouth. Skipping the rest of the way across the kitchen, I stirred the bow ties and looked at the can. Yep, the label said cream of rainbows. I wondered how it would mix with the sardines and mustard sauce and smiled. It was going to be awesome. I opened the can and grinned broadly down at the thick, soupy mix inside the can. This was going to taste so amazing. The sardine can had a pull tab, so I just grabbed it and opened them. I'd never eaten sardines, but I did love mustard. And the little fish in their yellow sauce looked appealing. Better see what I was getting into. Still pleased at the thought of the pasta and the soup mixed together, I pinched a piece of sardine off with my fingers and set it on my tongue. Tangy! Horrible. This was going to ruin dinner. Not just dinner. Life. My whole life. This dinner was the beginning of the end. The kitchen seemed darker, but there weren't any other lights I could turn on. Well, that was a lie. There was the light over the stove, but something told me that flipping the switch would be a waste of time. Surely the bulb would be burnt out. I sighed and trudged back to the silverware drawer to put the can opener away. Stupid Drew and his stupid groceries ruining my life. He did this on purpose. He was deliberately trying to kill me with sardines, whole wheat rabbit food pasta, and cream of darkness soup. Cream of darkness? Yep, that's what the can said. I sighed again. It didn't matter. This was going to be horrible. The disgusting mess of bow tie pasta was done. I strained it, mad at myself for not being able to get every last drop of water off them. It was going to make dinner runny. I was sure the milk in the fridge was spoiled, so I didn't bother to put any in. Dinner was going to end up chunky and gross because of that, but that was Drew's fault for not getting milk. I guess. So it would be chunky and runny, a terrible combination. I dumped the lump of condensed soup into the pot and stirred. It was pointless to scrape the can. I'd never get all of it out. Sighing, I ran a finger along the inside of the can and licked the soup off. Drew was going to hate this. All of it. He was going to be so mad at me for this dinner. He'd kick me out of the house, and then I'd end up getting lost, and Mom and Dad wouldn't be able to find me when they got home, and then I'd die out in the cold, all alone and scared. <sighs> Shaking, I stirred the cream of terror into the pasta. My heart all but stopped when I reached for the sardines. Swallowing nervously, I carefully put them into the pot with the lumpy soup and pasta mix. 
The fish broke apart as I stirred. Drew was going to be so pissed about that, I knew it. The mustard sauce turned everything yellowish. Drew hated yellow. I didn't like it either. It made me think of a bedroom nightlight, which made me think of the dark, which made me think of all the things that would jump out and get me when Drew kicked me out after he tasted this meal. The sauce was supposed to be creamy, but it looked so lumpy. Milk. That's what Mom used to smooth it out, right? Maybe I could use that to make it better so Drew wouldn't kick me out. I pulled open the fridge, relieved to see that our milk jug was intact and the milk looked fresh. I braced myself to smell it, afraid it would be disgusting. It smelled fine. My heart leapt. I had to taste it first, just to be safe. Normally, I wouldn't hesitate to drink straight from the jug, but if Mom found out I had, she'd kill me. I poured a little milk into a cup, said my prayers that it wouldn't kill me, and drank. What the hell had I been thinking all evening? My heart was racing. That had to stop. I breathed, content with myself. Drew couldn't kick me out over dinner. I was older by three years. I could still beat him up. I'd been silly to be so afraid. And if I did end up leaving the house, my best friend lived right down the street. I could always go to her house. I looked at the milk jug, then at the concoction in the pot. The empty can of cream of chicken sat on the counter. Cream of chicken. Of course that's what it was. I'd been such a moron. I poured some milk into the pot and stirred, thinking. My brain had been everywhere this evening. Why? The food. Of course. I wondered where Drew had gotten it all. My mood had changed when I'd eaten one of the ingredients. I stirred more. How could I serve this, knowing what it was made of? Easy. He'd bought the ingredients, so he'd eat them. What would it do to his head when all those ingredients were mixed? Maybe it would teach him to buy proper groceries. Drew, dinner, I called. Calmly, I carried the pot to the table and set out bowls and forks. This cream of whatever casserole was going to do something. There was only one way to find out what. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think the words were as good as you made them sound. But maybe that's just me being critical of my own work. Cream of darkness. <laughs> cream of darkness. <laughs> that was awesome. Well, thank you. I... Well, and it helps that I actually do have a little brother who would likely do that same thing. So it was very relatable for me. And just FYI, that is a semi, you know, autobiographical story in that my mom actually does make tuna noodle casserole with like three ingredients and it's still one of my favorite comfort foods to this day. So, it is. I love it. 30 years old. Still wants mama's food. It's kind of sweet, actually. All right. Enough about us from us. To us, with us. Now something about some other us that's not us. Promo. Have you heard of the Round Table Podcast? Here's how it works. We invite authors onto the show. Welcome to the big chair at the Round Table. Sherry Priest. Tim Pratt. Gail Carriger. Seanan McGuire. 
Patrick Rothfuss. We ask them questions. One excellent question. You know, no one's ever asked me that question before. Uh, these are great questions, by the way. Wow, no one's asked me that before. Then we invite writers on to present a story idea. The genre of this story is a fantasy set in a space-like setting. It's a superhero western. It's a steampunk, dieselpunk fusion just because of the timeline that it's in. There's a supernatural horror story with just a bit of a detective thriller peppered into it. And then we workshop the story. You're going to know what your ending is when you know what your conflict is. Brian, I like your I like your Sopranos meets mm-hmm. Iron Punk meets Rome meets psychotic future killers. I think that's that's a, a great mashup. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense and I can't believe I hadn't thought of that. Sure. I think I think that's that's a must. I love that idea. And everyone leaves in a state of writerly bliss. You guys have given me so much to work with right now. It's ridiculous. And <laughs> the ideas that I've gotten out of this today, there's just there's the gears are just running up. I've, I've <laughs> spending this time with you guys has made it a whole lot more likely that this will get written. The Roundtable Podcast. Check us out on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our website, www.roundtablepodcast.com. The Roundtable Podcast. Literary alchemy. One podcast at a time. And we're back. Indeed. So here's the thing. We love doing Stoke the Fire episodes, but it's actually been a while since we've had any flash fiction submissions from you guys. So I'm going to get on my knees once this episode's done and beg you, we need more flash fiction, guys. We're getting a lot of main ingredient submissions, which is awesome. And we love them. We really, really do. We absolutely do. Stoke the Fires are a lot easier for us to put out. And a lot shorter for you to write. Yeah. And so if we can get Stoke the Fires, I would love to do, you know, two Stoke the Fire episodes a month if we were to get submissions. So we're going to give out our prompts and, again, get on my knees once we're done recording this. I won't. But I am going to get on my knees and beg you, come on, guys, submit us some flash fiction, please. We know you listen. And, like, uh, Austin Malone, I'm looking at you. Ooh. Through the microphone. You said you were gonna? I'm holding you to it. A direct one. Oh, yeah. Wow. So, prompt number four is, a company has just received an order of fledges. They did not order these. And prompt number five, which is my favorite of all the prompts we've had so far, is, something in your bathroom is your character's spiritual leader or confidant. I need to write one for that. So do I. I've actually already written a fledges one, so I guess I lied when I said we didn't have any submissions, but I don't count me. I foresee a lot of toilet humor. (laughs) No, I need to write a toilet story. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. But you should also write toilet stories and then send them our way, because that would be great. <laughs> Seriously. You know you wanna. Come on. Come on. <gasps> you can do it. Who's my little writer? Is it you? Is it you? Yes. Good job. Good little writer. That's what I will say to you. If If, if you submit a story, send me your phone number. I will call you and I will say that. So there, yeah. And I don't do phone stuff. So, yeah. That's big. Do it. Okay. All right, I can tell you that our next episode will be, surprise, a main ingredient story, but it's, ah! a, it's a good one. It's a very good one. It's a very good one by our, you know, friend here at the podcast, Scott Roche. Yay, yes. Scott! We have another one of his. So you can look forward to that on the 1st of May. So until then, write us words, 
send them in, and we'll use them to feed the masses. Thank you for listening to The Melting Podcast. You can find our website with submission guidelines and current prompts at themeltingpodcast.com. Find us on Twitter at Melting Podcast or email us at themeltingpodcast at gmail.com. The Melting Podcast is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means you're free to copy it and share it, as long as you don't change it, don't sell it, and always link back to the website. Sound effects are from the Free Sound Project, and the music is by Drew Rich Creek.